the uh, total health village uh, is in in some ways i need to make this disclaimer first uh, it's it's the total health village hopes to achieve total health but at the same time it's not about health alone though arguably all of these are health determinants issues of livelihood security and other things as we go along we're going to see are all issues of total health so i'm going to run you through uh, this whole presentation and at the end i hope if we have time we'll uh, be able to look at uh, and i share something with you on what happened very recently in one of the areas so i'm going to run through this presentation try to keep some pace so that we have enough time for questions at the end and people out there at the back can you hear me are you okay with my accent is is the only one i have <laughs> okay i i work for an organization called map international and we have a booth downstairs just as you enter on the left side is the second booth up there and for 56 years we have distributed medicines and uh, essential medicines to our 112 countries on an average per year uh, last year in 2009 during the difficult economy we still uh, gave out medicines worth 380 million dollars we are approaching the 4 billion stage and it is a testimony uh to god's provision because we have a huge warehouse in uh, in brunswick georgia and it's 65000 square feet plus a part of it is the office and on one side we have 20 large partners who have a global ministry field and they have sub partners 2500 of them we have a very good supply chain for all those medicines to go out but if you go to the other end of our warehouse and you open the shutters there is no assurance of knowing for sure someone has committed to give us medicines and yet the lord provides between 300 to 380 million dollars worth of medicines so if there's an exercise in faith that it, that is what it is and in june this year we'd come down to our dangerous levels very very low levels in supplies so we shut all the doors we reminded ourselves that this was god's ministry where we are partners not our ministry where he is a partner and then having reminded him that we walked around around each of the racks and said lord we need these we need these these are required the people who are on the other end there are lives to be saved because last year in 2009 uh, the medicines were used for 42 million treatments that's not a small number and then we shut the door and we prayed and god answered that prayer 3 months after that prayer we made and the entire uh, the warehouse was filled uh we we reached 98% capacity and timmy botright my colleague who 
collapsed last night. Do you remember? There was the, the, the emergency people were here. And then we took him to the hospital. He, he had gone down on his potassium levels because he was, he was trying some fast to reduce his stomach. And um, uh, he said, if we get one more shipment, we won't have place to keep it. That's a testimony to God's faithfulness. But we as an organization want to look at total health, which means distribution of medicine is not going to be our main focus. Though we will not reduce what we're doing, but we will expand some other things. And that's what I want to share with you this morning, uh, this afternoon. Uh, it's a low-cost, high-impact way of addressing poverty issues and achieving the Millennium Development Goals. And how do we do it? Now, here's here's an example of a holistic worldview analysis. Can you see it there at the back? Okay, in, and this is a place where we were trying to use small seeds. We use a technique called the 10-seed technique. And I'll write my email here later on. So if you are interested, you need to write to me and say, please send me that PDF copy. Or, uh, you know, I can help you where you can download it. It's a free copy of the book on the 10C technique. So we were using the 10C technique, which is used for the worldview analysis. It's those three concentric circles and various segments, and I'll explain to you later on how that's done. And there are a lot of old people in this group, so the seeds we were using were too small, so they couldn't see it. So someone had to run out and get some lemons, so they're not always that size. Uh, here's another place. Uh, the first one that you saw was from Ecuador in a place called Apatug, and this is uh, in, in a place called Lahusa in Indonesia, North Sumatra. This is from the eastern part of Kenya in the Kailolini district in a village called Kilonga. And this is after we finished the worldview analysis, we're talking to the rest of the community, and the person you see in a, in a uniform there is the village chief dressed in his official clothes. What is a total health village? Uh, the vision and strategy of this program is to support and empower communities to solve their own problems. This is very important. Uh, if we do not move in that direction, it, it's going to be very difficult to sustain any development program. And how do we do it? Everyone's talking about empowerment. We'll talk about this a little more and explain it in details. What are the salient features of a total health village? It's really a total well-being village because it covers a wide range of issues, not just treatment, not just prevention of disease, but a whole range related to livelihood, security, and so on. And I'll explain this as we go along. It's a way to impact a whole village, and to do it cost-effectively, it's a way to, uh, that is completely participatory. Participatory in identifying, analyzing, planning, and working in the community. And we use what is called the CORP, the community's own resource person. As outsiders, MAP International is only a link and a catalyst. Now, we learned this when we did, we studied social development. The change agent is, is an external person, not part of the equation, but just a catalyst. And then somewhere along the way, as we get involved, we forget about it and we take over and we, we run the whole process. 
and we direct what needs to be done. That should never happen. We are only a link and a catalyst. It's a way to have community-to-community connection, which means one the development community connecting with the village community. Now, what we are now targeting to do is to have the church as a community connect with the village as a community. And so it's not only just at the analysis, planning stages, but they would be a year or two later, they could go in as a medical mission. The youth can go in there to volunteer, okay? And we've got lots of places where we can plan out and do this. And we're looking for churches to partner with. So meet me after we finish today. It's a long-term process, not just one year, two years, but we aim to have at least a five-year process process of being connected. It's a process of relentless optimization. What that means is we are continuously looking to see how we can do things better and with less and more efficiently. So if there are things that can be dispensed with, we will remove them and start improving in the whole process. Uh, There is an investment in the program which is only the core funding. The core funding or seed funding enables the community to even write its own proposals so that they can access new programs. We'll talk about that also later. And then it's built on what is called the THV 50-40-10 principle. Well, what is that? What is the 50-40-10 principle? I need to tell you a story for this. And uh, the story is about this village that lived on top of a hill. And they lived there, a whole range of people there. I don't know if you can see the diagram clearly enough. And down below in the valley, there were a group of people who lived in nice houses. And these people up here on top, if I can get the mouse to move in the right direction, can you see them? They're looking down. And they were looking at these people down below in the valley, and the people in the valley looked like they were very happy. They had nice houses. They dressed in nice clothes. They seemed to be very busy doing something or the other. So the people on top of the village, they kept looking down. And they would keep staring and think of what are, what's happening here. This is a close-up shot. And they would keep looking. This is another close-up shot. So you can really see them up close. And they were really concerned. What's happening here? Tell me what you see. And then a whole lot would come and then they say, come on, come come here and have a better look. Uh, these guys live in really nice houses. Some of them are up on the roof there. Some are below. Come and take a look. And they, while they would look, they would have great aspirations. Let's one day try to be like them. We should get there. And, you know, one of the things that happens when you're on the edge you can fall over. So every now and then someone would fall and then you would just hear them scream as they were falling. And then clunk, they would see stars. And the people on the, at the building there were philanthropists. So they would immediately spot it and they would send somebody to carry them off to hospital. And uh, they really cared. And uh, then they would wait for the next person to fall. And then they would carry him off on a cart. And soon they introduced different types of technology. So they brought in a cart, which was a semi sort of uh, uh, 
partly manual and partly mechanical structure. And then they timed how much it takes, you know, between the time the person falls and till the time they take him to hospital. Um, and then they, they were so good at their work that uh, some people donated an ambulance to them and then um, even gave them a helicopter to monitor progress. It's a medical helicopter in case you didn't notice. It's a black and white photograph. <laughs> By the way, you don't have to be so serious. I mean, people are, <laughs> you're really worried like, is there an ER service here or not? Did someone call 911 or not? They didn't need to call 911 because there were these people who were always waiting for the next person to call. And, you know, they had a really well-organized system. And they even had an evaluator, an onboard evaluator. Do you see the onboard evaluator? The evaluator is always wear a cap, in case you didn't notice that. Okay, it's an unwritten rule. So the data is being processed, you know, as they're taking the patient, they're filling in the forms, handing it on, and the chap's keeping track. And uh, there's a high-level supervision also from the helicopter. And then uh, they introduce total quality management <laughs> and CQI, continuous quality improvement. And they really did this thing seriously. And then, of course, they were very successful. Success breeds and produces success. So donors came along, and then some more donors came along, and then even more donors came along, and they really set this place up. And they, they, had, uh, they expanded. They needed to make new houses because there were so many new people getting employed. And you could see there were a lot of people. Some maybe, you know, when you have a lot of people employed, some you don't know what they're really supposed to be doing. So there's a whole lot of people there doing all sorts of things. Uh, and then, of course, you've got these people up there on the roof that are, uh, they organize themselves into an eight-hour shift. So every eight-hour, there was somebody there watching with binoculars to wait to see the next guy who falls, blow a whistle, and the team would go off. And they're really well-oiled system. They're pretty efficient. And then one day, this guy looked up. And he said, why don't we just build a fence at the edge of that hill? And you would have thought everyone would have clapped for him, but they didn't. They kicked him out of the village. They said, we had planned to give you a job as a senior evaluator, and you've done such a stupid thing, you have questioned the very basis of our, of our existence. If we build a fence, people will stop falling, and what will we do with all this infrastructure we have created? What will happen to all these jobs? So not to be deterred, this man, uh, he took his backpack. Can you see he's got a backpack there? And he climbed up. Uh, he built a ladder. I don't know how long it took to build that. But, he, you know, he took the initiative in this. You know, that's, that's what I'm trying to say. He took the initiative, and he went up to this village, and he sat down with them. And he mobilized their efforts, and they built a fence. Okay? Now, since it was them building a fence, it wasn't, it wasn't a metallic fence. And it was just a bamboo fence. So they built this bamboo fence, and immediately there was a drop in the number of people who were falling over. Okay? And so they were very happy. But after some time, there were some people who were still climbing on top of the fence and falling over. 
So then they decided we need to have a major meeting in this village. And they built a second wall of defense. Do you see that? The second, I'm, I'm wired here, so I can't go near that. Okay, maybe that's the reason they wired me. Okay, uh, so, so, so you had this first fence over here, and then they built a second fence over here. This time, because people trusted him, they made a really high and a really effective fence. And then they started focusing on this side. And they started improving things. They started looking at the resources which they had. And they said, you know, we've got lots of good resources here. We just spent all our time there looking down at the valley below and it looked attractive. And so we forgot and we did not appreciate all the resources that we had right here. So they started building those resources, uh, replanting, bringing in, and you see that? The lots of growth. They even set up a little dispensary there. And then with all this happening and a greater concentration on this side, now both the lines of defense started being effective. The big fence stopped people from going and almost nobody went. And uh, very, very rarely there was somebody who went and fell over on the side. So this is what the total health village is. 50% of what we do is integrated community development. Livelihood security, food security, skill building, education. All of those things that are not directly visible as health determinants. That's 50%. 40% of what we do is the prevention part. Water, sanitation, vaccination, deworming, the prevention part. And then if some people still fell over the cliff, there were people down below to do something for them. And of course, it, it made it difficult because the numbers of people who were falling were less, but the people who were there to treat them were the same. So then they, as part of their own survival strategy, they started specializing if a person fell down and had a left hand broken, then there was somebody who was a left hand specialist. And if it was a right hand, then you had a right hand specialist. So they had to go into all of these super specializations. Now, I wonder if that story sounds familiar. Okay. What is the modus operandi for MAP International? We seek to pursue the goal of total health through two main strategies self-empowerment of communities, and holistic integrated development. Okay? Uh, we want to get the community to take ongoing comprehensive action to improve their health and well-being. And we try hard. Sometimes we have to kick ourselves from trying to take control and enable them and empower them to do it. There are seven critical features for a total health village. And these critical criteria are the following. We work in definable communities. You should be able to demarcate. So it's very effective in a rural situation. 
But there are also ways in which you can do it in an urban situation. But we work in clearly defined areas. So uh, we move as far away from the city as possible. Definable communities, and the focus is on self-empowerment strategies. We focus on project life cycles, clear life cycles. I mentioned five years earlier. Holistic approaches are the focus. Focus is on the empirical and spiritual, and I will clarify a little more at the end, because we're using this strategy also with secular organi organizations and partners. So when, when we talk about the spiritual, I'll talk about it at the end. So uh, I can talk with Emory University. I can talk with Georgia Tech. We can talk with any agency and work with them and do a total health village. But we can also work with the church in doing it. Uh, it's about partnerships. One of the mistakes we make is we try to do everything. We don't need to do everything that needs to be done. Partnerships are very important. We don't compromise on measurable and relevant results. That's a focus and it's cost-effective interventions. I had mentioned relentless optimization. We continuously try to seek to do things cheaper and cheaper every time and more effectively. What's the framework for our program? If you see that circle as a village, we use a strategy to understand the needs and then we try to the principal needs head-on, a very pointed, clear point of entry. Once you've dealt with that, you've earned the right to speak. If a community is struggling with water and you don't do anything about water, you're not going to get any support from them. So we had in a village, lymphatic filariasis was the problem. We dealt with it. It was not easy. But once we dealt with it, they came to us. They said, now tell us what you want us to do. We trust you, we'll do anything. And then they expanded the scope of our intervention. So you see there, just not just the point, but wider and wider and wider till you're addressing all the issues in the village. Okay? The holistic integration. But how do you find out what a community's survival strategy is? I'm going to tell you that. Okay, I, I brought this, but I don't think we are small enough a group to show you a demonstration. But we use seeds. The simple, ordinary, everyday seeds. Uh, I can't make an assumption on that. I went to Mongolia, I thought I could get seeds. So I told someone, can you go and get some seeds? And they all looked back at me and said, you don't get seeds in Mongolia. I didn't know that. They have only three days frost-free in a year. So there's no time for seeds to form. So uh, since then, I've been carrying seeds myself. All you need is 10 seeds. And if some of you later on would like to see how it's done, I'll, I'll demonstrate and show you this. Uh, we also hope at some stage to be able to create a recording of this and uh, develop models for the whole uh, strategy, how it's done, and it will be available as a, um, as a module for training. But what we do here is we have a focus group. Now, focus group size is about 8 to 10 people. 
and it consists of people who know their village well. So you can see from this group, uh, this is in uh, Kailolini district. And I would take 10 seeds, which are the same size, same color, dark color, and place them on a blank sheet of paper. And I'd say, these 10 seeds I've placed here, I know your problems are more than this, but I want you to imagine that these 10 seeds represent all the problems that your village encounters. Now, in this case, we are looking at livelihood. The entire livelihood of your village is these 10 seeds. From every home, from every source for the whole year. Ten seeds. And of course, someone will, you know, interrupt you and say, no, that's not all. We, we earn a lot of stuff. And say, okay, imagine all the cash and all the material that you produce, even the things that you consume, rice or potatoes or whatever it is, is equivalent to these ten seeds. Where did this come from? Now it makes sense to them. And they would, in this case, they pulled aside two seeds, saying that is from business. One seed was through agriculture. And seven seeds was through casual labor. And then there was some argument as they moved it. The trick here is you don't write the list of sources. You just ask them to work with the seeds first, cluster them. More seeds means more. Less seeds means less. No seeds means it doesn't matter here. So these are the three sources of income for this community as a whole. All right? Now, the principle we use in the 10 seed is the principle of optimal ignorance. How much can I afford not to know? And at a macro level... Anything less than 10% is not significant. So we also call it the principle of optional ignorance. How much can I afford not to know? Okay? You don't need to know everything about everything before doing something about something. You know, we are so, we are so caught up with and we are so focused on trying to get all the possible information about everything before we do something. So it forces us to take action, get a quick and dirty view, and proceed. So that's a livelihood analysis. Then we do a problem analysis. So again, we take another sheet of paper, and again with the focus group, we're saying, this concerns this whole village. Kibabwani in this case, and 10 seeds I put on this, and these 10 seeds represent all the problems that affect the whole village. What are those problems? And they set aside two for Afia, which was poor health, three for Ilimu, which was poor education, and five, they said, was Maji. So I said, can you be more specific? And they put two and a half was drinking water problem, two and a half was irrigation problem. Lack of water for irrigation, lack of safe water for drinking. And then they had the discussion. Can you see that guy there on the left? He's pointing out and explaining something. So when you make any changes, you've got to explain it. And you have a group of eight or ten who are immediately around the table and the rest that are behind them. 
And group dynamics allows a process for them to influence and uh, change the positioning of those seeds. And then we do the third component of the worldview analysis. So if you recall, the first one we did was a livelihood analysis. The second was a problem analysis. The third is an uncertainty analysis. What's the difference between an uncertainty and a problem? A problem is a problem that happens on a yearly cycle. So you might have annual floods. You might have annual period of drought. You might have uh, things that happen on a periodic basis which are cyclic in the village. It happens every year. But an uncertainty is a problem that may or may not happen. For example, in Haiti, hurricanes are a problem. They happen regularly. But the earthquake was an uncertainty. Because they didn't have one for almost 200 years. That's severe. Okay? In, in Sumatra, North Sumatra, Banda Aceh, the tsunami was an uncertainty. Okay? So then we put the uncertainties and again we put a blank sheet of paper. This is the third exercise. So we put up the first two, whatever we got, written in the local language and in a language that we can understand for us. Could be in small letters. Then we do the third sheet and we say, here are the uncertainties that affect your village. What are they? I put ten seeds. Can you show me? They showed Mafiriko, floods. Kipindu Pindu, cholera outbreaks, 30%. Ukame, or drought, 60%. Now, how can you have floods and drought in the same village? If you've been in the village, you'll know that it can happen. Okay, when we went to live in China, the director of rural development was trying to explain to me the topography of Nanning in Guanxi, the place where we lived. And he said, here, if we don't have rain for three days, it's a drought. And if we have days, uh, rain for two days, it's a flood. <laughs> okay, that balances. That's, that's how it is. Like, because when they say drought, it means you planted your seeds. Your seedling has grown. It's a week into growth. It needs rain. If that rain comes five days late, that plant will be dead. They've lost the seed, they've lost the fertilizer, they've lost 10 days of growth time, which was supposed to be synchronized with the rainfall. For them, that's a drought. Okay? So we've got these three here. Then we take this information and we share it, along with all of the other information. Now here, this is Dr. Kavaludi, who is our country director in Kenya, sharing with this. Now, one of the things I love doing is... Kavludi is a surgeon by profession. He doesn't believe in dirtying his hand with social development, but we got them all to do it, everyone. And once they've got used to doing it and learned how to do it, they're excited. Now you can't stop him from carrying seeds in his pocket and, and doing those exercises, sitting with the farmers and, you know, uh, facilitating a process. So we, we explain to them. And this is a process called triangulation where they can feed back into the information and if they do not agree, because you've done the focus groups at different locations with smaller groups, 
Now you feed back to the whole village and they make some changes. If they make a change, we incorporate the change and then here, here they are like, giving feedback and then finally we put it into the world. Now let me spend a few minutes explaining what this is. Do you remember the things that we did under livelihood? There were those three, business, agriculture and casual labor. Do you remember the things that we did under uncertainties? Drought, cholera outbreaks, floods, the orange. And do you remember what we did under problems of poor health, poor education, lack of safe drinking water, lack of water for irrigation? They have a fully committed survival strategy where they are doing something, outsiders are doing something, and their ancestors are doing something. Now, if you, in Latin America, you go to uh, Southeast Asia, you go to Africa, and they talk about the village which is above the ground, living, and the village that is below the ground, the dead and the ancestors. Okay, so this is their worldview. Some things that they do, some things that outsiders do, and something that's outside of their control. Now, I can't go too much into detail, but I would be happy to explain to people who are interested. We then take each of those segments, let's say for agriculture, and again I give them ten seeds, and I say, in agriculture you've got three segments, what you do, what outsiders do, and what's outside of your control. In order to have agriculture function at 100% capacity, Take these 10 seeds and show me how much is in your control, how much is in the control of outsiders, and how much is outside of your control. And they'll show it to you. Now, once they've finished this, first we mark it using a pencil, then we use a pen and make those permanent. This gives you a snapshot of how that village is today. Do the same thing after two and a half years, you got an evaluation and compare the two, you can see the progress in that village. Okay? You want to see what you impacted in this community. Use a different color seed. Out of all these changes, what did we as an outside agency have impact on? They can show you that. Now, the inner circle is the capacity of this community. The outer circle is the vulnerability of this community. I can take it from here and you can connect it to a log frame. You can get all this, the priorities for development. You put it on a log frame like this with activities, outputs, impact, and the community understands every bit of it. Sometimes they'll tell you this is not necessary. You don't even need to write it. We consider it done by the next time you come. This is nothing for us. And it's amazing. The cost that is involved and doing it when they are involved is very, very low. Once we finish this, we need to remember an important thing. The community is already, already holistically integrated. Empirically, which is the physical things, and supernaturally. Okay? Whereas when we talk about holism, we are talking empirical and spiritual. There's a very big difference between these two things. They, are already, they don't know the Lord. They are integrated holistically 
in the empirical dimension and in the supernatural. For them, something that doesn't work, they are willing to take a God or a spirit. It doesn't matter if that God or spirit is evil, does not conform to any moral standard. It doesn't matter. As long as it works, we can take it. That's their attitude. And uh, the empirical and spiritual is what we have, what we are supposed to have as Christians. What's the difference? <coughs> the supernatural is anything supernatural and it enslaves. But the spiritual is of God. It liberates and it transforms. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Didn't hear any amens. Okay. Uh, transformational development. We struggled for a long time <coughs> to describe this. We could talk about it. We could tell you about what transformational development is. We couldn't define it. Till finally we came up with this, de de this definition. Transformational development is progressive, permanent, God-intended change. Progressive because there are things that happen along the way where it is only empirical growth. It is permanent because you cannot go back. It's like metamorphosis when you're looking at a small worm that molts and grows, molts and grows. It can't go back. It may die, but it won't go back. And then it comes to its stage where it's in a cocoon. And when you think it's almost dead and nothing's happening, you want to actually almost knock on that cocoon and say anything there. And when it comes out, it's completely transformed. And it's the development to full potential which God wants. And, and that's the modification I made when I was in China because in China you can't have God in a definition. It doesn't make sense to them. So I made something that, that sounded better for them, progressive permanent development to full potential, and they loved it. And it means the same thing. It is, uh, that's why Paul said, I labor hard till I see Christ formed in you. Development to full potential. Okay. Now let's get into the spiritual part. So when you see a worldview analysis, that is all a community looks at. That's all they see. That's their framework to understand anything. So develop your your uh, lessons, lesson plans, your preaching in line with that. And you've got a completely open window to access them. But there's a strategy. The strategy, first is, before we go into the community, you need to prepare for the work. And I'm going to touch on this for the next uh, five minutes. The second strategy is the presence of God's people in the place. I will expand each one of these, but just write them down. Third is prayer for healing of the land. Fourth is the powers of darkness are confronted. Fifth, plans of action are implemented. And sixth, cooperate with God in the recreation of a new Jerusalem. Okay. Preparation for the work. Before you get into battle, you need to put on the whole armor of God. That's the first thing. Be prepared for battle. 
uh, if you want to kid yourself that you go into some of these places and it's just, you know, matter of, uh, you know, handling the uh, PQLI or the HDI, you're mistaken. You're going to come up with some severe spiritual confrontation. And if you haven't, then uh, it got you before you knew what happened. Preparation for the work. So put on the whole armor of God. Secondly, the work on the ground has to be preceded by the battle in the heavenlies. Before you go into a place, remain, remember to pray for it. I have been really challenged by looking at the Koreans. They pray a whole year before they go to a place. And they, they have strategic prayer at the principality level. Now, we have developed a, a tool called the default priority profile when you're looking at a project or you're looking at a country strategy, when you're looking at uh, analysis of uh, a country's uh, leadership capacity. There are four levels in leadership. The first level, the highest level, is the strategic level. That's the principalities and powers. The second level is management and administration. That's the political and other powers. The third level is the supply chain or the implementation chain. Those are the people who carry out the instructions of the top two levels. The implementers, that's the third level. The implementers, in this case it would be the shamans, the gangas, the ojhas, whether they're from India or any other country. The, the ones who are the, the spiritual heads at that level. And finally, you have the grassroots level interactors, the people on the ground who actually interface with the community. And this is what uh, Paul Hebert referred to as the missing middle. So you have these philosophical references to gods and everything, but on the ground, it's a different picture altogether. Those are the daily ones that they encountered, daily uh, gods and spirits that control their daily lives. Okay, so this is the first preparation. So put on the whole armor of God. The battle on the ground has to be preceded by the battle in the heavenlies. That prayer is four-level strategic prayer. Number two, the presence of God's people on the ground. There's a beautiful uh, promise in Psalm 125. I didn't see it till we actually had a situation. We moved, when I was in World Vision, we moved people from all the Christian concentrated areas to areas which were unreached. It was not an easy job. Because some of us had to also move just to give them support and show that we meant business. But when we started moving to some of these areas which were unreached, we saw lots of changes taking place. The slightest and smallest programs had tremendous impact. But what happened to the staff? They started feeling very isolated. They said, we are the only Christians here. There are no other Christians. We are just completely isolated. We feel left out. There is nobody else wants to come to this area. This is a strong Hindu area. Or this is a strong anti-Christian area. What do we do? And I was looking to the Lord for giving me a, a, a message for them. I saw Psalm 125. Verse 1 says, as... 
the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. But in Psalm 125.3 it says, The scepter of the wicked will not prevail over the land allotted to the righteous. Okay? It's a beautiful picture. Because God gave me a visual after that. I went to a friend's house and they had a little kid who was a toddler. And this toddler wanted to move across, find whatever she found, shoes, you know, pins, whatever, and take it straight away, put it into her mouth. And her mom was following her and just in front of her, wiping everything out of the way. And I got a perfect visual of what God does. Just your presence in a place begins the transformation. Just go there. That place is blessed for your presence. Because you are a child of God. And the rest of the verse says, He begins this cleansing because He does not want you to turn your hand to evil. Which is amazing and powerful. So that the presence of God's people at that place begins transformation. Number three. Prayer for healing of the land. God's people on the ground must begin to first pray for lifting of the curse. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? The, 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 the land was cursed. By whom? Who cursed the land? God. Okay? Now think this through carefully. If God cursed the land, what are, he, he added some things also. There will be thistles and by the sweat of your brow and all of that stuff. Okay? Not comfortable. If God cursed the land, who has to lift the curse? Only God. So God's people on the ground not only begin the transformation by just being present, but they walk around. You don't have to make a big pump and show of it, no, uh, no big march and all that stuff because you call unnecessary attention to yourself. But just walk around and say, Lord, lift the curse upon this land. Lift the curse upon this land. Do it. Start doing it. Don't wait till you go abroad. Do it in your neighborhood and see how God begins to bless your neighborhood. You won't need a neighborhood watch anymore. He will be there. He will send his angels to take care. Ask God to lift the curse. And then ask him to heal the land. What happened to this tradition? It was a part of a tradition. I'm not saying we go back to a tradition. But prayer for healing of the land. Would God's people do that? Second Corinthians chapter, Second Chronicles chapter 7 verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will hear and heal their land. So pray for healing of the land. Lord, give this rain in its season. Lord, you are the author of biomass. Fix this. Set the pH right. Okay, I did a lot of agriculture research work. It's complicated. And you know, sometimes the, the scientist would say, only God can fix it. Amen to that. Yes. Only God can fix it. Pray for healing of the land. Number four, 
and this is actually 4A and 4B because there are two things that go simultaneously. The powers of darkness need to be confronted. In Luke chapter 11 verses 14 to 23, Jesus says, if you went into the house, you could not take anything inside that house unless you bound the strong man of the house. So when you're walking past some temple or some stronghold, and believe me, there are strongholds. I've seen them in Mongolia. I've seen them in China. I've seen them in Laos. I've seen them in Myanmar. I've seen them all over. In Indonesia, I've seen them all over the world. Okay? Ask God, inactivate this, Lord. (laughs) Find this. Because He said, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Okay? Claim those promises. Please write them down. Carry them around in a little uh, flip chart or whatever you like to carry with you. And ask the Lord, just inactivate this God or spirit who is deceiving people. Just bind him. And then for B, which goes co-simultaneously, plan of actions should be implemented. Now, though that's from, from Cambodia. You can see the, the worldview analysis there. I don't know. Is there somebody here who need, reads Khmer? No? You can safely ask things like that. <laughs> okay. So, um, the plan of action, I showed you the worldview analysis. So, what are the things that were required to be done? You do it in this. And then you you build the capacities, you reduce the vulnerabilities, there are a whole series of things. And finally, you participate with God in the creation of the new Jerusalem. Uh, Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. If you haven't read this, these are powerful. Behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create a new Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. And then it goes on. I will delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Decrease in infant mortality rate. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his years, who dies at a hundred, a man who dies at a hundred would be thought to be a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered a cursed. Increase in life expectancy. They will build houses and dwell in them. What a beautiful promise. So many of our people there, they build and they live in a shack. They never get to see that house because their feet might stain it. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in it, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will the days of my people be. My chosen ones will long enjoy. Okay. So that's what I wanted to share. I want to take you now quickly. In the next three, four minutes, I want to take you to something that happened very recently. North Sumatra, that's a very rough map. I don't want to give you any names there. North Sumatra, south of Banda Aceh, we have a project, a cluster of total health villages that we are looking for partners to work with. 
it's an area with a lot of Christians. But because there is no support to these Christians, they are wavering. Some are even considering becoming Muslims again. And in this place, recently, about 10 days ago, not even 10 days ago, a week ago, there was a series of six or seven earthquakes. One of them set off a volcano in Mount Murapi. And the subsequent earthquakes set off 15 other smaller volcanoes that were dormant. They've all become active. There was uh, fear of a tsunami. They made an announcement there will not be a tsunami. The tsunami did take place last Monday. Completely wiped out three villages. And for some reason when the sea swallows human life, it becomes aggressive and wild. We sent a team, doctors, nurses, a medical team to respond in a place called Padang, very close to where the earthquake took place exactly a year ago. And they went there, they were on their way to help. It should have taken them eight hours to go by boat. Twenty hours, there was no sign. Twenty-five hours, there was no sign. I called my, my person who was there, L.V. Stiahan. I said, L.V., I don't care what time it is. Every time you get a, you send them a message, you don't get a reply, call me. I don't care what time it is. Three o'clock, she called me in the night, and she was crying. She said, there's no sign of them. It's over 30 hours. We were praying. A whole network of people were praying. Half an hour later, she called me back. She was crying. And she said, they're safe. They're safe. And between all the sobs, she kept saying they're safe. And I couldn't control myself. Both of us, you know, she's in Indonesia and me here, crying and praying and saying, Lord, we give you the glory for saving our people. A week later, we got a complete detailed report of what happened. The boat had been hit by a storm. It was so bad, they were thrown out of the boat. But they all were wearing their life vests. And they managed to get back. Fortunately, there wasn't a flow at that time. It was just a bad storm. They managed to get back. They got down at the boat. The captain is a Muslim man. He didn't have any idea. They're begging the Lord, take us to safety. And they, were, they went to an island. And the people there said, this is not a good island because it's where all the prostitutes that serve the fishermen live. That's why you never knew about this island. It wasn't on the map. Anyway, they, they were safe. They stayed the night because it was raining very heavily. The next morning, they decided to go. But in the night, the roof of the house where they were staying, they stayed with a lady who was expecting a baby. It blew off. So they said, we will wait behind to put this roof back. So they wait, waited behind and put the roof back. And she had heard them singing and worshipping. And she says, I want that. So they prayed and they led her to the Lord. And then they went back, bright sky, went two hours into the sea, again hit by a storm. This time they came back again to the same island in another place. They didn't know it was the same island. But when, an, when something like this happens, the chief of the village and the leaders, they come to people who have been blown ashore and they ask them, do you have a message? And they said, we don't know what message you, you want, but we have a message of joy to share with you. So they found a guitar somewhere in Indonesia. You can get guitars quite easily. 
they had a worship service. All these people who were going to this, this prostitute island, they gathered as many of them who would come. And 35 of them gave their lives to the Lord. <laughs> Do you know why God delayed the plan? Do you know why God changed the plan? This is the team that works on preparing that area for total health villages. We give God the glory. I told him I will share it here. Thank you. So any questions? Okay, let, let me give you my email address.